Open hearing, usually broadcast every Tuesday at this time, will not be heard tonight due to the special program which follows. This is the eve of Lincoln's birthday, the night before members of the Republican Party will be making important addresses throughout the nation. At this time, Columbia brings you an address by Senator Robert A. Taft of Ohio. Senator Taft is chairman of the Senate Labor and Public Welfare Committee and chairman of the Republican Majority Policy Committee. Senator Taft. A hundred years ago, Abraham Lincoln sat in the House of Representatives here in Washington. He came as a member of the Whig Party, a country lawyer. His mind deeply grooved in the principles of liberty and American justice. He was frankly a politician, but he did not hesitate to take a strong position against the Mexican War and against the slave trade. The first position against the war made him unpopular in his home district. The second might well have barred him from further progress in national politics. Yet he never lacked the courage to state frankly his considered decisions. He believed in the party system and took an active part in the campaign of 1848 to elect Zachary Taylor. He made, however, little impression in Congress, apparently, and was very much downcast by the fact that his home district deserted the Whigs and elected a Democratic congressman over the man whom Lincoln supported perhaps because of Lincoln's own position on the Mexican War. It was nearly ten years before he again became a candidate for elective office when he ran against Stephen Douglas for the Senate in 1858. His experience here in Washington was a valuable part of his training. It gave him that sense of the congressional processes which made his dealings with Congress in 1860 essentially successful. He learned that legislation is unlike anything else in the world. The legislative process of today is not different in nature from that which Lincoln saw in 1847. It is infinitely more complex. It cannot change fundamentally if we are going to retain in the United States the form of government which has been more successful than any other in maintaining freedom. The legislative process is a cumbersome one and requires both patience and experience. Many people in the United States apparently do not understand what the job of Congress is. From the letters I receive, they seem to think that Congress runs the United States government and that the Republicans have therefore taken over that government. Of course, that isn't so. Congress only makes the laws. It does not administer them. It does not run the government bureaus or the departments. The making of a law is a long-time proposition. It has to be carefully drawn to provide for all contingencies all the different classes of people and all the different sections of the country that may be affected by that law are entitled to be heard to present the reasons why the law should be passed or defeated or amended. Once the law is passed, it may be many years before it is changed. Today, the Republican Party in Congress, for instance, is unable to repeal any of the New Deal laws if President Truman chooses to veto the repeal because we do not have a two-thirds majority. Furthermore, the president has a wide latitude in the administration of the law. This is especially true of the New Deal laws, which were drawn deliberately in such general terms that the New Deal bureaus could do almost anything they wanted to do without a clear violation of the law. Furthermore, in the whole field of foreign policy, the Constitution gives the president power to talk with foreign nations and do everything short of making a formal treaty. In the United Nations legislation, and in the Reciprocal Trade Agreement Act, Congress has delegated most of its remaining powers over foreign policy to the President. 
He hardly needs to come to Congress on any question relating to foreign policy unless he wants money. We do have the power of the purse string. The newspapers personify Congress in cartoons or in criticisms of its ability or its character, its changeableness. Because one congressman or senator expresses a violent opinion, a large number of people seem to think that Congress must agree with him. Of course, Congress is not an individual. It does not resemble an individual. It is made up of 531 different men with different opinions and different characteristics. It is intended that the result of its labor shall be a consensus of the opinion of 140 million people. It takes time to reconcile the views of so many congressmen. The result must be a reasonable compromise. If we are to get a law which accomplishes its main purpose without bringing about bad results in special fields or special parts of the country, the present Congress is made up of earnest and able men determined to meet the problems of the day in the interest of their constituents and of the people. There's been some unconsidered criticism of the fact that 30 days have passed without passage of tax and labor laws. Why, it always takes some weeks to even organize a new Congress. This year, the task was especially difficult because the Republicans took over control after 16 years and had to set up a brand new organization. No Republican now in the Senate has ever been chairman of a Senate committee, and now there are 15 new chairmen. Furthermore, the LaFollette-Monroney Reorganization Act abolished all the old committees and set up 15 new committees, each authorized to have a staff of 10 men, including four professional assistants, intended to be of high academic or professional ability. Of course, it has been impossible to complete these staffs and find enough competent men in 30 days. In effect, we have been trying to start a new business from scratch. On the labor bill, we started hearings as soon as the committee was appointed. We are holding those hearings four days a week, and it will take until March 1st to give every important group an opportunity for a brief presentation of their views. Many witnesses will have to file written statements. If we report a labor bill out of the committee by March 15th, it will be the quickest action on a major bill which Congress has seen in many years. In the field of finance, the LaFollette-Monroney bill requires a new joint committee to submit a legislative budget by February 15th containing an overall limit on expenditures. This is a short time indeed in which to analyze a $37.5 billion budget. But the work is proceeding night and day, and it will be done by February 15th. There will be a cut of at least $4.5 billion below the President's figures and perhaps more. In spite of the President's contention, the $37.5 billion cannot be reduced. I am convinced that there is not a department or bureau or agency of the government where business methods cannot substantially reduce expense. It is hard for the best bureau chief to get over the philosophy of the New Deal and of the war years that government deficits were a blessing in disguise. I may point out that this is only the beginning of the job. After we fix an overall limit, the appropriation committees will go on with a detailed consideration of expenditures in the various departments. Regardless of our resolution fixing an overall ceiling on expenses, Congress has power, at least, to go ahead with separate appropriation bills and appropriate a total well in excess of the limit. We do not propose to recommend a total figure unless we are certain that Congress will stand behind us in preventing additional appropriations later on in the year. That is no easy job.
for the Republican leadership in House and Senate to assume. Starting next Monday, the Senate will have all the work it can do. I hope we may pass the constitutional amendment limiting presidents to two four-year terms, which was passed last week by the House of Representatives. We shall undoubtedly have a debate on the resolution limiting expenditures and cutting the president's budget. We shall proceed with the bill nullifying the portal-to-portal -portal pay windfalls, which our Judiciary Committee has been working on. In order to permit the Second War Powers Act to expire on March 31st, we shall have to pass special acts dealing with sugar, rubber, and a few other commodities. By that time, we shall have before us the major labor bill designed to reduce the strikes which have been such a threat to the welfare of the country. When the debate on labor is over, committee reports will be so numerous on so many different subjects as to satisfy the most impatient. We have also begun a longer, complete study of all the emergency laws brought about by the war. Some of these have been terminated, but there is a lot of deadwood left to be cleaned away before we can restore real freedom in America. The Second War Powers Act expires on March 3rd. The President has requested its continuance as to many products, and then has asked for the power to regulate any other product if he finds a national emergency to exist. I thought the days of national emergency perhaps were over. Certainly the Republicans do not propose to continue this law, and they do not propose ever again to give the President power to declare national emergencies. We have lived in a state of emergency for 14 years, and it hasn't done us any good. We believe the government, like the people, should operate under the laws of the land. There may be a few products in which there is still a great shortage and where higher prices would not increase the supply for quite a while to come. The most notable examples are sugar, rubber, and rants. If control in these fields is to be continued, however, those who advocate the control must come before Congress and make their case on the basis of absolute necessity and include justice to those who may be regulated. We found in the case of the OPA that the removal of control did not bring about the disaster which was predicted. It is certainly better to take controls off a little too soon than a little too late, and certainly none of these controls should continue beyond 1948. In the Joint Committee on the Economic Report, we have begun a study of the causes of economic depressions, and we hope to develop a program to maintain stable employment and prosperity. The problem of economic stability seems to me to rest primarily on a continuing balance between competing forces, a balance between taxes and government spending, a balance between wage levels and price levels, a balance between wages and consumption, a balance between agricultural income and industrial income. Wages and prices, for instance, must be in proper relationship. If the price level rises faster than the wage level, buying power ceases and production falls. If the wage level rises above the price level, there is no profit in business operation, and all expansion of business at least ceases. Such a general increase in all wages and salaries as was promoted last year by the administration could only create confusion, higher costs, and higher prices, threatening a continuing inflation which throws many other factors, like white-collar salaries and the cost of living, entirely out of line. 
Such a general and unjustified increase as occurred last year brought about no increase in real wages because it forced prices up and the cost of living up just as much as it forced wages up. Today, the best we can do, apparently, is to stabilize wages and prices at about 50% over pre-war. Of course, to the extent that we can increase the productivity of the worker, we can increase wages without increasing prices. I hope that we may create a special committee after the passage of our labor bill also to study the whole problem of employer-employee relations and their effect on productivity. Certainly in England we have seen that the breakdown in productivity is likely to bring national disaster. Today profits have been high in many industries, low in others. Where there are profits, they ought to be reflected immediately in a reduction in prices rather than a further increase in wages. Only thus can the whole people get the benefit of a, way, of a uh, wage increase. I am confident that competition is rapidly being restored to a point in which it will force such a reduction in prices where consistent with adequate production. A stable economy depends also on equality between agricultural income and industrial income. The Republican Party has two years in which to develop a permanent agricultural policy designed to promote an average price level for agricultural products comparable to the prices which have to be paid for industrial products. It is not an easy task, but many solutions heretofore proposed are before us for consideration, and I am confident a reasonable program can be worked out. While government has to take an interest in these various relationships, it cannot undertake a detailed regulation of commerce and industry, or of prices and wages, and hope to maintain our principles of liberty. We must have a proper incentive for men to put their brains, their energy, and their money to work, with an opportunity for generous reward. We have built up this country and created jobs by inducing men to go out and start new industries, to develop new ideas, to put a few men to work, and then hundreds and then thousands. We have seen during the war how government control checked incentives and finally broke down after the war through the very inability of any mind to deal from one central point with a vast detail of economic machinery in a nation of 140 million people. The removal of business control had a far less upsetting effect on production and stability than did the general increase in costs promoted by government interference in 1946. The government has always exercised a control over credit inflation in its various forms. It can exercise an influence in many other fields without detailed regulation and interference with the freedom of enterprise. In the Senate also, the Republicans have begun a number of long-term projects of a more, of a more uh, social welfare nature. The committees have begun to study the health problem the education problem, the housing problem, and the social security problem. Bills have been introduced providing federal aid and assistance in these fields. But in these fields, of course, the primary responsibility rests on the states and local governments. And under any Republican program, they must retain complete control of the administration 
and the type of program. The Congress of today has to deal with a vast field of subjects far beyond the comparatively simple task of Abraham Lincoln. The federal government has a finger in every pie. The tendency is too much to demand that every problem be solved by federal legislation. We can give the congressman better tools, better quarters, and adequate staff, and even then he cannot possibly keep up with the matters which are forced on his attention. I receive over 800 letters a day at the present time, and of course I can't possibly handle them all myself. The congressman has less time for legislative work, but the reorganization today, I think, has given, given him more expert assistants to whom some part of his work may be delegated and through whose assistance his work may be better done. We are moving as rapidly as we should move to complete with proper consideration the pressing problems before this session of Congress. I believe we are entitled to ask the people for forbearance and a final judgment based on the things which we have done, not on the things which irresponsible men may threaten to do, and not on the things which the newspapers predict that we might possibly do. From Washington, Columbia has brought you an address by Senator Robert A. Taft, Republican of Ohio, on the eve of Lincoln's birthday. This has been another of many CBS programs brought to you to keep you informed on matters of public interest. Next week at this time, Open Hearing with Winston Burdett as moderator will be resumed. That's Open Hearing next Tuesday night at 10.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We return you now to New York. CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.